0: Hello and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered.
1: Hello everyone, welcome to Tennis with an Accent. It's been a while since we spoke as a fabulous four. No, just kidding, but I'm happy Uh, Matt and I have been joined by Andrew and Mert. So that's our big four in our in our own world. And no better time than to look ahead at the last major of the year, which starts uh, in 20 hours or so uh, in New York tomorrow. And um, uh, we, there's no introduction needed. Like I said, this is uh, the regular crew. So let's not waste anyone's time on a Sunday afternoon and get the conversation rolling. Gentlemen, how are you all doing? I'm Related doing pretty to be well
2: in Houston despite the heat, but I think uh... – Mert is having a time of it uh, further east.
1: Yeah,
0: in Istanbul, it's just as stifling as Houston, it seems.
3: And I'm and in Phoenix good. where it's pretty much always hot. <laughs> there you go. So is
1: this podcast. So yeah. as a, a scene Sarah, me and Matt will co-pilot this, but we didn't do a Cincinnati review. So I think Djokovic-Alkara's fourth act has already defined it as a rivalry that may be short-lived, but we want more of it. So there's a lot of speculation, a lot of post-match analysis, and me and Andrew thought this could be the icebreaker since we didn't do a podcast. So a question, quick question to all three of you. Greatest three-set match ever? That's <laughs> the theme that surrounded it. Andrew, kick it off. Um,
2: well, I don't know if swearing is allowed on the podcast, but but I'm going to go hell no uh, <laughs> In in terms of it, that's an example of recency bias. Um, at four all in the second set, uh, the Tennis Channel commentators uh, Goodall and Courier were expressing surprise that Djokovic was upright. So, you know, I know that that he was having issues with the heat, and then, as we know, he managed to battle his way through to to take the the second set take us into a third set which had you know some truly excellent uh singles play uh and it had a thrilling conclusion so uh, a a a really good enjoyable match is going to feature in a lot of top 10 lists i would imagine deservedly so at the end of the year but greatest three setter ever i'll start swearing again
3: all right andrew i gotta jump in with a quick follow-up How does this compare to, and I know we've all talked about it a lot, death in the afternoon, the four-hour Nadal-Djokovic-Madrid semifinal in 2009? I think that's a natural point of comparison. What would be your primary thought about that comparison?
2: So, you know, you've you've teed me up, Matt, with the the idea (laughs) that, you know, the – the, the, the legend around death in the afternoon was created by our old friend Steve Tigner, who wrote about it, I think, at, at the end of 2009 because he was weaving in his own memories of watching it in Madrid in a cafe and how important that match was for the subsequent season because Nadal beat Djokovic in an absolutely epic Thrilling match. It was a it was a a match in which both players played well at the same time for more than they played in Alcaraz Djokovic this year. So I'll I'll give that semi final the tip of the cap over the the recent match. But then Nadal went on to lose to Federer in the Madrid final, and uh, then lost to Söderling the the one match he lost in Roland Garros in years until eventually Djokovic did defeat him and Federer won Roland Garros that year Um, I believe that Nadal pulled a ripcord on Wimbledon and Djokovic didn't achieve very much in 2009 the rest of 2009 so the legend of death in the afternoon was sort of something like two men enter neither leaves that it was such an intense combat that both of them were finished for the season and and i can bore for england on the rest of uh the implications of death in the afternoon i'd say it was a better match i don't think that was the best three setter ever and i'm not going to be drawn on which the best one was
1: Murray well, do you want to come in and say disagree yeah. agree no, no, uh...
0: Uh, I agree with and uh, I agree with Andrew uh including the, the 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 cuss word but uh yeah no it's it was a very good match fantastic match Andrew said all that needs to be said but I wouldn't uh, I I'm not going to sit here and try to you know list the the five or six or seven that comes to my mind that uh, could rival this in terms of quality but um there are there are other matches who are um who are comparable in uh, in quality but th- this was definitely a great match but it would. But the I will just simply say this: not every single point in this match was decided with a winner or with an excellent shot. There were also some double faults and some unforced errors. But regardless, overall, really, really high quality match. Just not the best uh, two out of three set that uh, that I've ever seen. I
1: think. A, to- a, a, go ahead. Yeah, I just going to make a quick point because Mert and I were I think again we all chat you know simultaneously sometime together sometime on our WhatsApp or DMs. So it is a bona fide rivalry, right? This is what tennis needed, especially with Nadal's health big question mark if and when and in what shape he comes back. So Djokovic still playing like a top dog and Alcaraz and Djokovic besides the French Open match has given three three classics. Uh, again, classic is a relative term. So what do you see of this rivalry as a you know scene setter for the US Open, Mert? Is it is it what the men's tennis needed, or we are in a hyperbole mode? There are other players like Sinners coming in as a good story. Medvedev has had a decent year, but you think this is the standout what the tennis world needed?
0: I would say that this is the, the rivalry that the men's tennis world needed. Uh, and this, is, this has come about because Alcaraz is, did become that one tennis player that for the previous four or five years we've been asking who's going to rival the big three. This is a question that has been around since since time immemorial, it seems. You know, but, but who's going to rival the big three? And now that we've gotten, uh, you know, one of them retired, the other one's close to retirement uh, out this year for sure, and uh, and Djokovic still in and playing really high quality tennis. This is exactly when we needed uh, someone to step up and uh, and show that they can play at the level, at that elite level, and Alcaraz happened to be that person. So that's why it's such a great rivalry. It could have been someone else, but it happened to be Alcaraz who, uh, who, you know, worked up to that level. But at the same time, I think it's good that he's the one because he's, he's got such versatile game and uh, he's, um and, and, and he's, he's fun to watch. He's super fun to watch. You know, he's got uh, all all kinds of variety in his game. And uh, I think against Djokovic to watch that kind of player against Djokovic um battle back and forth with high IQ and try to out outdo each other's uh, chess steps, so to speak, makes ter- makes it a very, uh, very uh, watchable and enjoyable uh, rivalry. You know, I'm not sure if, for example, Medvedev and uh, Djokovic became a rivalry. I'm not sure how much quality. It, 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 I'm sure it, it, there'd be great matches, but the quality, the watchability, the spectacular pattern of points that we're seeing with Alcaraz and Djokovic... I'm not sure that that would happen if if it were Djokovic and Medvedev, for example. So I'm certainly glad for my part that that we have this rivalry. I think it's a great rivalry and it's too bad that it will not continue for a long, long time.
3: Well, speaking of rivalries, Mert, and kind of piggybacking on the question I asked Andrew in terms of comparing uh, 2009 Nadal-Djokovic-Madrid with this Alcaraz-Djokovic match, you know, a de- we've been talking about this for a decade and and by we like we haven't been doing this podcast for a decade but we the tennis community has certainly been talking about for a long time um you know the merits of of three set versus five set tennis and also like in 2012 we had the 5 hour 53 minute Australian Open final between Nadal and Djokovic and you know so we've had a long time to process and really absorb what it means to watch a long, dramatic tennis match. But of course, length and drama are not the same things as quality. However, when you see Alcaraz and Djokovic trading punches and showing so much mental toughness over three hours and 49 minutes, there is something to be said for the notion that, okay, because they showed such toughness for almost four hours, that might elevate it above other matches that lasted two hours might have been more aesthetically pleasing, might have had more pure shot-making quality. And so, you know, like, the larger question I'm asking here, Mert, and I do want Andrew to come in and follow up after you're done, Mert, is that has, have any of your views changed in terms of appreciating length of, of battle as part of how we process tennis matches? Because, like, a lot of Federer-Murray matches, just to provide one example – might not have lasted forever. Like like Federer's straight set win over Murray uh, at Wimbledon in the uh, semifinals, I believe it was 2015. Like that was just an immaculately played match. But you knew Federer was winning. It was pretty much one-way traffic. But like, you know, just from an aesthetics uh, point of view, it was probably a better match than what we saw with Alcaraz and Djokovic, certainly in the first two sets. But then again, come back to, wow, such toughness, so many responses under pressure by both men, two guys not backing down, boxing without the blood, you know, the Bud Collins uh, phrase. How, how have your views, if at all, evolved over the years? And, I, and what, there's one last point to make, that when Borg and Connors would play a five-setter at Wimbledon or the U.S. Open in the late 1970s, early 1980s, the racket technology was so different. Like the, the 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 weight and heft of shot, so different today from how it was then. So that invites another reason for just bringing up the question of: Have any of your views changed in terms of appreciating the length of a battle uh, and factoring into the quality of a match and the quality of a tennis experience you've had?
0: Um, in terms of length of the battle, that matters not so not so much to me. Uh, I I'm, I would still be looking for quality when i'm when i'm watching tennis but at the same time when you have more time to turn a match around there's also more time to turn a match into a higher quality match so therefore the the the, the you know the emblematic example that i can give and i that i could give if i researched i could give another hundred of these i'm sure would be a semi-final that federer and Soderling played a long time ago in which uh Federer outclassed Soderling for the first two sets. I can't remember if it was the Australian Open or the U.S. Open. It was a semifinal on one of those. And um and oh, and I you think guys... you're
3: I think you're thinking about a quarterfinal that was uh, uh in like 2009, 2010.
0: Was it? Okay, okay, maybe yeah. I'm wrong in the in the round. Soderling you know, was, was semi-
3: slow out of the blocks, but then it really became yeah. A it was cracker a, it, was in the was a set. it
0: it was a complete one sided affair. Great if you're a Roger fan. But if you were looking for tennis, it was just a really lopsided tennis. Roger absolutely destroyed Soderling, and then in the third set, Soderling finds a way—not because Roger's level dropped, but because he started bringing his level up and and brings it to, I believe, a tiebreaker. Really thrilling finish to that third set, and then you have a great fourth set that uh, that was watched and commented by everyone. And uh, and I thought that you know that's that's a great example of how. Uh, you know, best, the best, best of five just gives you that extra chance to turn them, turn a one sided match around and turn it into a high quality battle. And some of the best five setters in the, in the history of tennis have come from where in the first set, one player dominated the other, but somehow the other player finds a way to, to level things out in the second or third set. And it turns into a great, uh, Great epic battle, and also from a from from a standpoint of marketing, I don't think I think we are exceptions. Probably the four of us and and some others who, you know, I, I don't have trouble sitting down and watching a match from the first point to the last point. Okay, and 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 because I think every match every match has a has a story uh, that needs to be written, but uh, but not everybody necessarily watches a tennis match from the first point to the last point. A lot of people drop in and out. Uh, a lot of people just drop in on the, in the second set or they hear that there's a great match going on and then drop in you know this is the pattern of a lot of casual fans which is which outnumber by the way tennis fans like us and if you want to attract those fans into tennis into becoming more fans of our type i think the last thing you want to do is shorten the the match time and um and and by shortening the match time you you reduce the window of time that you might buy coincidence or accident or by by preference by, by by their own choosing new fans that may come into the in into the game as great as the as the um, uh, as the, uh, as this three out of, any three out of uh, best two out of three set matches you know you take a match like alcaraz and Djokovic at wimbledon who in my opinion had good quality tennis anyway especially in the fourth and fifth sets uh the uh, i wouldn't say that the quality was low by any means i thought it was great quality match Um, I would call it the highest quality in the same way that we were talking a second ago. But it was a great quality match that probably attracted more new fans into tennis than some of the recent other matches that I can remember. And I just think that the 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 final that we had in Cincinnati with Djokovic and Alcaraz is a huge exception. Not not you know you can watch maybe hundred two out of three set matches. And you will get one or two like that one that lasts three and three hours and forty minutes that provides really high quality tennis for more than fifty percent of the time. You know, wonderful, but that's that that's very low percentage and, and you know and, and you had the two highest profiles in men's tennis playing that match. That was a final that was anticipated for a whole week, talked about a whole week so that it couldn't have worked out better. But then you tune into the slams, and you have great five setters. Every round, and uh, and I I just think that the trade off is uh is uh is in is in best out of five's favor, in terms of uh, attracting new fans, and in terms of getting high quality tennis, and in terms of blowouts not happening as frequently as they happen in a two out of three set match.
3: Andrew, your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I think we have to be a little bit careful. You know, because we're, we're, we're talking about overall tennis rather than just ATP tennis. WTA players don't get to play best out of five. And I would love for there to be some arrangement, whether it's quarterfinals onwards, you play best out of five for both singles tournaments or you alternate. I, I could imagine alternating with. Australian Open and Wimbledon, the WTA play best out of five. Uh, Roland Garros and the U.S. Open, the men play best out of five. And then you flip it in, in alternate years. I could imagine doing something like that. And, and
0: Andrew, sorry to
2: cut in the middle. What
0: do you think about also flipping the day? You know, having the women play the Sunday final, final the last match 100%, of
2: the A I, 100%. I think that the idea that the women's tour is somehow a supporting tour is is built into the, uh, the 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 timetable so that you have um invariably even if you have a mixed tournament the WTA tournament goes on first and the concluding singles tournament is the ATP tournament and uh, hopefully one thing that happens during the the 2020s is that structurally the two tours come to uh, a way of underlining the idea that women's tennis is as uh, competitive and as valuable as the ATP version so uh yeah 100% 100% whatever structures you can have that reinforce that that idea i'm in favor of i think My, right, the three of them, go ahead no no i am going to take it as 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 read that you know the the motion passes nemcon as we used to say in the uk but going back to to quality and perhaps um you know, thinking one last time about the um, the Cincinnati final, the Alcaraz-Djokovic um, rivalry. Quality for me is both players playing well at the same time. And again, the ATP, with players playing well, you very often have them serving well. And sometimes you know the the games pass in a blur but both alcaraz and djokovic are high quality returners so it's unlikely that they would get through a lot of games just serving it out at 40 love 40-15 the thing that i think makes the alcaraz djokovic rivalry really interesting is the variety that both players can bring to the game and that Alcaraz has emerged as a, you know, a potential elite player of the open era who many of us expect to have at least a half a dozen majors under his belt. If he stays healthy, if not more over the course of his career, because he, he he's also bringing something new to the game and if I contrast Alcaraz with, let's say, uh, Alex de Manor, de menor is a high-quality player. He made the final in Canada. It was his first final. But he plays a very, I think, bread-and-butter, meat-and-potatoes, ATP tennis game, where his game is built around consistency. And so de Manor might in some alternate universe, have become a player to rival Djokovic and the very best by this time. But playing the game he plays, I think that uh, Murd already said that, you know, if it was Medvedev versus Djokovic as the big rivalry, we wouldn't be as interested. I think it was Diminoor and Djokovic, we wouldn't be as interested but Alcaraz, with his use of the drop shot, his blistering pace and, and his infectiousness, you know, he, he is a personality as much as he is uh, a, an emerging great player. And that personality, I think Nadal obviously had it at, at a young age. Federer w- was different, but his game communicated personality. Djokovic started off um you know with his, his mimicry was what he was famous for before his play reached the elite level of uh Federer and Nadal. So having, having those personalities on court and then having Roland Garris, Wimbledon, Cincinnati, and now many people are hoping for New York, that rivalry is a rivalry of Of really interesting tennis and really interesting personalities as much as it is we're going to see long matches and one of the 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 top two seeds is going to win
3: so with that as a very long uh, Cincinnati review tucked into our U.S. Open preview let's now indeed move to the men's draw for the 2023 U.S. Open uh you're you're your general let's just get general thoughts because lots of follow-up questions are going to happen we're going to peel away the layers of the onion don't you worry everyone listening here on tennis with an accent so just Andrew your general thoughts and then Mert your general thoughts on the draw what you see is some of the plot points and storylines that you're interested in in New York
2: yeah so um I did some preparation I've got you know a notepad in front of me um for the for the men's draw, you've got the 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 way the seedings can potentially play out. Um, I think that there is something of a consensus view that of the two top seeds, Djokovic has a a more appealing draw than uh, Alcaraz. You can only play the guy in front of you, but you know, as I was thinking, does each player? seeded one through eight make the quarterfinals as seeded I've got a big exclamation mark against Djokovic saying yes absolutely Djokovic you know you almost pencil him in for the quarterfinal given his draw I have yes against Alcaraz I think he makes the quarterfinal given his draw but it doesn't have an exclamation mark and then if he does uh, make it through to the quarterfinal, he potentially meets Yannick Sinner. And we've talked about the Djokovic uh, Alcaraz current rivalry. Obviously, one of the rivalries for the next 10 years or so, I think, is going to be Alcaraz Sinner. So that is a potential quarterfinal blockbuster uh, for the ATP and then uh let me toss the ball quickly over to mert for his thoughts on on the ATP draw
0: yeah and uh <clears throat> the only thing that i will add just a, a, an overall uh, uh look into the men's draw I, f- I i almost feel like you have i agree with andrew by the way about the you know which of the top two C's got possibly the the better draw or not better necessarily but at first look the easier or the tougher draw but it seems like you have the Russian uh, gang uh, in the second uh, half of the top half, in other words, second quarter of the draw, trying to decide which representative out of them uh, they're going to put in the semifinals against Alcaraz. And then at the bottom half, you have the American crew uh, who are going to decide who's going to put who, who, which name they're going to put in the semifinals. Against Djokovic or, or who's who's going to rival Djokovic, Taylor Fritz is on Djokovic's side. And the and the third quarter of the draw, which is the top half of the bottom half, in other words, Djokovic's half of the draw, the top half of the Djokovic's uh, half of the draw, has um, a lot of American hopefuls. Almost all of them are are, are squeezed in there. So that's going to, going to be interesting to watch. And equally, uh, Rublev, Medvedev, uh, Hachanov they're all in the second quarter of the draw, so uh, you know those are the quarters that uh, that frankly I'm more interested in watching in the first uh, half of the tur- in the first week of the tournament, the second and third quarters, and 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 see if, see which Russian will come out of the second quarter, and uh, and which uh, uh, American will come out of the third quarter, or if somebody will stop these two crews and come out as a non-American or a non-Russian out of those two quarters.
3: Now, uh, you know, one of the things that's relatively new, I mean, within like the last, you know, in the 21st century, let's put it that way, not talking about uh, the whole entirety of the open era, but just like the last 20 years or so, it has no. it had normally been the case until very recently, that Wimbledon would end usually the second Sunday of July, second weekend of July, this year. It ended the third weekend of July. Like July 16 is historically a relatively later end point uh, for Wimbledon. So you had just three weeks between Wimbledon and Canada. It had been four. You know, it's a little bit more time for the, the big dogs, especially Alcaraz and Djokovic, uh, to stretch out a little bit, decompress a little bit more. Um, but this year, not as much time. Now Djokovic, of course, didn't play Canada. He wanted to give himself an extra week. Alcaraz just threw himself into the fray and, you know, we didn't see his best tennis in Cincinnati. And then they play a really, really long final. How, what are your worries? Both men uh, start with Mert, then go to Andrew. What, what are your worries that uh, both uh, Alcaraz and Djokovic are overcooked? And and if one person is a little bit more prone to, to just running out of steam in New York, does, you know, does your meter, does your inner detector, Lean to to one or the other, or is it pretty even?
0: I, I don't think so. I think I think they'll be fine. Uh, they, the only way that might matter, at all, if any, is if they end up playing long matches in the first week. Uh, you know, un, un, unexpectedly. I, I don't expect them to have uh, long matches in the first week, but if either Alcaraz or uh, or Djokovic end up playing uh, these drawn out epic. Matches in the first, second, third round, then of course that might uh, that might affect their second week physical conditioning if they're still there. I'm not sh- even in that case. I'm not sure if that'll have anything to do with what happened in Cincinnati. So um, no, these are professionals. Uh, they've been in this in this similar situation before. Djokovic a ton of times, in fact, has been in this situation. I think they'll be fine.
3: Andrew.
2: Yeah, I mean, one thing that we saw was that Alcaraz played a ton of three-set matches, both in Canada and um, in Cincinnati. Uh, he was able to go all the to go the distance in the final against Djokovic, but people noticed that he was having hand cramps in the final tiebreak and was was actually having difficulty gripping his racket in his right hand uh for at least a couple of points in the tie break and obviously after the the Roland Garros semi final that they played um i th- i think that there's still a little bit of a question mark about how deep alcaraz's tank goes after he's had to draw upon it. So this wasn't something that I, I think that Federal Nadal dealt with. It was so you know Djokovic had issues early in his career, uh I I think with uh his 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 long term fitness dealing with with breathing. And then, by the time he was 23, 24, he put that behind him. I, I'm I'm not sure yet that that Alcaraz is, you know, has a bottomless tank and can play. Federer used to say that he would train to play five sets seven times in Grand Slam tournaments, and I'm not not a hundred percent sure that Alcaraz is is there yet. Although I agree with Mert that if if both men are able to to navigate the it through to the round of 16 or the quarterfinal, having dropped a set, I don't think it's as big an issue when you're getting to the, the later rounds.
3: Being ready to play uh, seven five-setters, that was the Tony Roach uh, mantra to Roger Federer. Okay. Wondering if he was really physically fit, uh, it was a challenge, and it definitely served Federer well uh, in that early part of his career so um as we now look at the draw more deeply and you know you both broke it down really well um especially mark with you know kind of the, the russian gang in the top half and the american club in, in the bottom half let's look at a couple other players that we haven't uh, drilled deep on yet yannick sinner so he made the semifinals at wimbledon he got rid of that question when are you going to make a major semi when are you going to make a major semi so the press doesn't have to ask him that question. Now it's going to be when are you going to make a major final? When are you going to make a major final? Uh, also, you know, won a masters, won a, won a one of masters of one of 1000 point tournaments. So we checked that box as well. And the obvious point with sinner is that wow, he just had the the magic carpet ride in terms of just the, the, the parting of the red sea, everything opening up for him on those draw sheets at Wimbledon and then in Canada as well. But obviously, in sports, and it's not just tennis, any sport. Sometimes it doesn't matter whom you play or how you achieve something. Just that reality of achieving something, reaching a milestone, you know, getting on that victory stand. It doesn't matter how you did it, but just the fact that you did it that changes your outlook. But of course, the skeptics are going to say he didn't have Murderer's Row to deal with. He didn't have to go up against the heavyweights. So, how do we deal with the that fundamental tension point with Yannick Sinner? First, Andrew, then Martin.
2: I think that where Sinner is at the moment is actually a really good place in terms of having someone like Darren Cahill in his in his coaching setup. I think what Cahill is almost certainly doing with 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 Sinner is saying. Don't sweat the short-term stuff. Sweat your progress as a tennis player over the period of about a year or so. And hypothetically speaking, looking at, at, at Sinner's draw in uh, New York, he's potentially got a countryman uh Sonego in the second round, you might have a popcorn match against Stan Vavrinka if he can make it through to the third round. But I think that I I think Sinner looks really good to get to the quarterfinals. Now, let's say he plays Carlos Alcaraz in a quarterfinal. It's late night in New York, and it ends up seven five for Carlos in the quarterfinal, and they played an epic quarterfinal match last year. My guess is that Yannick Sinner, if, if in in that hypothetical scenario, Yannick Sinner comes off court, and Darren Cahill and his coaching team will say, "You know, guy, you left it all out. there. tremendous match. Uh, get into recovery. Do your press. Let's take some time off, and then let's come back and 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 go the next week, the next uh, month." go for the year-end championships. I, I don't get the impression that Sinner is in a hurry. I don't know if you feel the same, Mark.
0: Andrew, I feel the same, actually. You, you somewhat uh, walk right into what I was going to underline also. I think the, the fact that uh, Sinner made the quarterfinals in the French Open uh, in 2020 somehow creates this impression that uh, that he's been around a while at this high level and uh the that that show in 2020 quarterfinals of french open was a step in the right direction but it wasn't he he wasn't at that level yet quite frankly and uh it's in 2021 that he started slowly reaching his potential you know winning big titles and then it's only in 2022 uh oh. that he and in 2023 you know this year the last Let's say 18 months, where in the slams he's been he's he's become a regular in the second half, uh, in the second week. So what I would like to say is let's give him some time. He's actually going up the steps one by one with plenty of time to to marinate what each step brings and what what each uh, level brings to 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 him as a player, to his development as a as, as a as a person as a person, you know, to because it's not just your game that needs to improve, but it's also how you handle, how you manage the fourteen-day-long uh, adventure that's called a major. You know the, what you do in, be, you know, during the days in between matches. What you do in the in the beginning, in the morning, how you prepare for it. If there's someone in your draw, like for example, now people are already talking about a center Alcaraz quarterfinal that may happen really in about eight days, nine days, and, and you have to learn to manage that. I, for example, would argue that Alcaraz did not know how to manage that at the French Open. And uh, and that's one of the reasons why he's had those those tension issues in the semifinals, because he was the first time in this, he was in a situation where he's going to play an elite player on the lead stage, and people are already talking about that matchup 13 days before it happens. And you have to manage through, you know, you have to learn to manage that. Uh, you know, Djokovic has done that 35 times, whereas Alcaraz, the four Alcaraz, that was the first. Which I think he managed better at Wimbledon, because also at Wimbledon, from the first moment on, everyone started talking about the Alcaraz-Jokovic final at Wimbledon, and it and it did happen. And in my opinion, the, the the experience at the French Open helped Alcaraz there. So same thing with Sinner, you know. Now Sinner is going to manage these next, you know, eight, nine, ten days a lot better than he did in 2022 or in 2020 when he when he reached the quarterfinals. He's a more seasoned, uh, second weaker. At a, at a at a slam, so to speak. I know that word doesn't exist, but uh, he's a more uh, uh, you know a regular guy who's who's been there before. And uh, even if he doesn't get it this time around, with a coach like Cahill, who who knows very well how to coach players who are learning that process, uh, he'll get there eventually. So uh, you know, again, let's not let uh, the appearance at quarterfinals of French Open twenty twenty you know lead us to a, to the to the to an inaccurate conclusion, as if to say, "Well, he's already, you know he's been there for a while. He's stagnating." That is not the case at all. In fact, I would call his last year and a half uh, an improvement and slow establishment into a new level where now, in my opinion, he feels comfortable. Just now, and uh, and look, if if uh, if he wants to, if if his fans are in a hurry, or if he's in a hurry. To get to that uh, next level, here's the best opportunity he could have. He would have to beat Alcaraz in the quarters, Medvedev in the semis, likely, and then Djokovic in the finals to win a Slam, and now talk about catapulting to a to an elite level. So, you know, here's another opportunity where he has a chance to step up to the next level. But if he doesn't, it's fine. It's not the end of the world.
3: All right, the other player want to get your thoughts on, first Mert, then Andrew, is uh, Holger Runa. And, uh, I, you know, this is not uh, an extremely deep conversation. I mean, it, it can become one, but I think on a general level, what fans just would probably want to know listening to our podcast is, is this guy's body toast for the rest of 2023, or does he have a comeback in him? Does he have a response in that body? for the, for the U S open. And I think attached to that is, you know, how, what kind of physical development or what, how, how should he work on building his fitness base with, you know, perhaps incremental changes to his game. If you're coaching Holger Runa coach, Mert, what, how do you strike the balance of, you know, finding ways to evolve as a player, but also just building that fitness base because he's run into a wall in five-set matches this year.
0: Yeah, the, um, Matt, I'm very um, apprehensive or tentative in matters of, uh, you know, how to build a fitness for a player that I don't uh, regularly follow, you know, in terms of what he does outside of tournaments.
3: Sure. So
0: that would be something that this fitness team would be able to answer in in a lot more in a sounder way. I would I would I would just be providing speculations. But there's, but I agree with you that this, uh, the the durability, of you know, of physical durability, physical endurance, so to speak, is a major um, point of improvement with him. But how to do that would be, quite frankly, up to the professionals on his team. And uh, and not only uh, would that be outside my area of expertise, but also I would be speculating because I'm not around him enough. Uh, it could be that he's working on it regularly, and uh, there's some some other issue that we're not aware of, or that that's not being shared. I don't know, but yes, endurance in in uh, in slams is something that uh, that uh, is is, a, is an area that he could improve. Game wise, I think he's improving, and um, in his own track to to um, to to become um, to become one of the top players. You see, the the one uh, the one area that I would still I'm still not 100 uh, uh, percent on board with is uh, is how he handles clutch situations in high profile matches. I know that he's beaten Djokovic before in in high profile matches. I know that he's had great results, but he also he also he's also had matches where he, for the lack of a better word, where he lost his cool or he lost his head and ended up losing the match. I don't see, for example, I don't see the maturity or the even-handedness, the mental even-handedness that Sinner shows or Alcaraz shows with Rune yet. So, uh, you know, I would like to see that one time before I can say, I'm more, before I can say comfortably for him, what I just said, you know, three or four minutes ago with Sinner or what I thought about Alcaraz two years ago. So you know that's that's the only uh, question mark that I would have,
3: Andrew.
2: Yeah, I, I think that Mert put it really well. Um, there's there's a really interesting sort of bratish element to to Runa, and he. One really interesting match for me that uh, I, I'll remember throughout 2023 was the Munich final against Botek van der Sandskoop, who um, was on the verge of winning his first tournament, uh, his first ATP tournament. And I, I believe that Runa took a medical timeout and was, I think he was down something like 5-1 in the in the third set and managed to get one of the breaks back with van der Sandskulp serving for it and then van der Sandskulp couldn't serve it out again and uh, Runa won in the final set tiebreak. I think van der Sandskulp had something like three championship points and couldn't take any of them and Runa sort of almost looked like you know, he was a, a nine-year-old who'd gotten away with uh, stealing something from a shop. That that it, it, it was sort of like he'd done something really slightly naughty in winning. Now, that may have been just me projecting onto it. And, and how how Van der Sandskult didn't go home and and kick the cat out of the window, I I, I don't know. Um, he hasn't progressed. In the two Masters thousands tournaments since Wimbledon, beyond the first round, uh, he lost to Giron in Canada, and he retired in the the second set against uh, Mackenzie McDonald. So yes, he's coming in with a, a big question mark about where his his body is, and he's he's prone at this stage of his career to having physical issues. Uh, I think he's got a, you know, his trajectory has a rocket attached to it. He's, he's already the number four uh, in the draw. Um, two or three years from now, is he the the highest ranked player in the world? He's got the potential to be that. If he solves his physical issues, if as Mert says, he manages to, to tone down some of the um the the mental aspects of of losing his cool, of of appealing to his box all the time if things aren't going well. He, you know, his potential is is huge. Uh if he does a, a thrilling run through New York and and makes it to the final, he would likely have knocked out Novak t- to get there. That would be quite something. I'm not sure if he's ready yet, but two or three years from now, I'd I'd be surprised if he's not competing in the final four week in week out.
3: All right. Before we go to the women's draw, final question: just one player on the men's side you are keenly interested in in terms of their progression and results in New York, and/or just a person for whom you think this U.S. Open is. Particularly important, Andrew, uh, you can lead us off, lead us off, and then we'll go to Mert. Just one uh, player you, you have your eye on for the coming fortnight.
2: Chris Eubanks uh, great story in the first half of the year, uh, playing for the first time in uh, his home slam as a seed, I think uh, wonderful, wonderful prospect.
0: I was also going to say Chris Eubanks, but I had a B plan just in case Andrew said
1: it. <laughs> a coach <laughs> is I, always prepared.
0: No, because I, I was, uh, I was, because I think Chris Eubanks is also placed well. I mean, I, I think he can go far. He's got a good spot in the draw. That's why. That, that's why I'm looking forward to, to uh, to seeing how he progresses. But uh, but my my other name would be my second name would be Cameron Nori, uh, simply because again where he's placed in the draw, you know, he would be. He, Carlos Alcaraz would be his um, fourth-round opponent and uh you know if somehow he, he Norrie is not someone who's a stranger to beating big names and uh and favorites in a tournament and all of a sudden he can put it together because he has not had a good pre US Open uh, right. uh stretch actually so but but then again the players that he's lost to also are not necessarily you know they're, they're I think he lost to Monfils in three sets and uh, and he lost to, he may have lost to Eubanks, in fact. in, the, in No, not Eubanks. But anyway, the losses that he said are not terrible losses, but he did lose early. So overall, his his results coming into US Open is not uh, eye-opening by any means. But where he is in the draw, he's got a fairly difficult first round, difficult, for, or, or I would say, you know, dangerous first round. But if he can make it past that, I think he can go all the way to round four to play Alcaraz. And and then if he beats him or if Alcaraz somehow doesn't get there and he moves on, he's got, a, he's got a good shot at a semifinal.
3: All right, let's move to the WTA, the women's uh, tournament at the, at the U.S. Open. And, you know, it's, it's a real shame that uh, Iga Swiatek and Coco Goff are slated to play in the quarters. Uh, you know, people certainly wanted them to be safely on opposite halves of the draw so that we would at least have the possibility that they'd meet in the championship match, but we're not going to get that. You don't always get what you want in life. We all know that well, but it obviously invites the possibility of a blockbuster quarterfinal under the lights at Ash stadium. And, and as we, you know, consider Coco Goff's rise and win in Cincinnati, start with Mert then to Andrew, what adjustments have you seen in Coco Goff's game? Like, is it just like, you know, just hitting shots better? Or, or is, has there been a, a strategic structural, uh, alteration you see in terms of why she's getting more out of her game? Because first half of the season, you know it well. She was riding the struggle bus. And then here's this much more evolved player who had more solutions. You know, she's always been a good competitor. You know, she like, like she'll play each point with tenacity, but now she had a fuller. Riper game. What what adjustments do you see, and in, in what she's been able to do?
0: I'll start, but I'm not. I'm going to kind of disappoint uh, everyone uh, because um, grass court season and the hard court season following that, which in some where some tournaments, of my player was on clay. But to make a long story short, I've been so busy with uh, my player and another player that I'm coaching that uh, that I haven't had much time to watch. Coco Golf's match, or, or the few matches that I've watched happen not to be the ones that she's been involved in. So I can only speak from highlights, and I, I don't like to do that. I, I actually like to watch full matches of a player, possibly two, three full matches on different surfaces before I can really make a sound judgment on what's different or what's not. But uh, from everything that I hear from, my, from, from a few people whose opinion I trust in tennis, that uh, that she's got a that she has uh a simplified her um, her backswing on the forehand and that she's uh, she's a lot more stable on uh, on her footwork when she gets to the ball and gets gets set to hit. But uh, again, I'm I'm really sorry that I cannot give a a sound. I I don't feel comfortable, you know, giving my opinion on that without having watched enough well, well, uh, okay. in that time period. Before I go to Andrew
3: speaks. before I go to Andrew. When, and this is where you, the coach can come in and educate our listeners. When you talk about simplifying a stroke, what does that usually involve? Like, is this, is like the take back too long? Is the follow through too loopy? Is like, does some, is there usually one detail that's normally found in an overly complicated or cluttered stroke? And as a coach, how do you go about simplifying?
0: Yeah, the 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 most common one when people say simplify they're talking about perhaps a big loopy uh backswing that you may have which you shorten up, not necessarily make the loop disappear, or you can do that that too, by the way, you can do a straight take back uh backswing before hitting the shot which would be by definition a simpler way because the racket racket has less distance to travel back and forth than a big loopy uh backswing or you could be you could be uh, abbreviating the loop, you know, instead of the whole arm doing the loop, maybe you keep the, the elbow stuck to your ribs and, and you just have the forearm doing the loop, which some, which some players have when they're, when they're trying to return uh, against a big server, you know, they might have a big loop on the backhand or on the forehand, big backswing uh, normally during the rally, but for that particular return against the big server, they may abbreviate that, uh, that backswing. So that would be, you know, one way of simplifying it or perhaps you're using too much wrist. You know, when, you, when you're, when uh, you when you're, for example, hitting a drop shot, perhaps you're simply cutting down too much with the wrist. Simplifying would mean maybe perhaps step in, use the ball space as the ball's coming up and use the ball speed coming up to give that backspin to the ball as you make contact with it and you don't have to undercut as much as uh, you you do otherwise and that would be simplifying it. So it could have, Several. I'm glad you asked the question. It could have several meanings, but uh, I just gave you the two more common examples there.
3: All right, Andrew, what do you see in anything different that Coco Gauff uh, is doing on the court to help help her get better results and turn her season around?
2: I don't. um, And I'm a little bit nervous about attributing the outcomes of matches between top players to to very small adjustments in, in technique. Uh, you know, in the in the most recent tournaments that she's played, and unfortunately the WTA side is a little bit less user friendly than the ATP side, but she had a tight match against Jessica Pagula, uh, that went to Pegula in uh, Canada. And then she won for the first time against Iga Uh So I think that she, she'd lost the first seven to Sviantek and hadn't won a set, but was able to prevail in three sets, six, four in the third in the semifinal at Cincinnati. Uh, Goff I would go back to the, uh, the thing that I said about Yannick Sinner Goff is younger than Sinner she probably has had about as much time in the spotlight as Sinner but I think that, that Goff has been seen for a long time as, as very much a potential future number one and I would imagine that the the people around her are, are telling her, you know, keep progressing. She's now, I think, something of a fixture in the top 10 this year. And she's played one major final previously. Um, so, you know, is she going to win majors in the future? Absolutely. If she doesn't win a major in 2023, is everyone going to say it's a tremendous disappointment? I don't think so. Um, if you think back to, I, I guess, possibly the Wimbledon introduction that we did, uh, we were talking in terms of a potential big three in the women's game, Rabakina, Sabalenka and Sriantek. I think Goff has got a little way to go before she's seen as someone who is expected to compete at the semi final stage. But that will come as she develops physically and as she gets more experience rather than, I think, slight technical adjustments.
3: In terms of other players of note at the U.S. Open uh, in the women's tournament, one of them is one of Mert's favorites, Karolina Mukova. And we have to talk about the fact that, you know, Mukova takes down Arena Sabalenka at Roland Garros in a very long physical taxing match. And then they meet in Cincinnati, and Mukova is once again able to, you know, she took some punches, as she did against in the Roland Garros semifinal, but she's able to turn it around. And, and you know, like Mukova is this wonderfully gifted shot maker, possesses a lot of variety. I mean, her, her stylings aren't the same as Ash Barty, but just in terms of having a lot of different shots to call upon and having a, an expansive court sense, like in that regard, there there is a commonality with Barty. But, you know, clearly the mental toughness of Carolina Mukova, I think, has been underrated. And we've seen it emerge quite fully against Sabalenka, a player who, you know, I think had the best January through June of any player on tour for the WTA in 2023. I mean, Sviantek, you know, won Poland-Geros, as she is wont to do, and uh, Rabakina had a terrific uh, first half as well, but I think Sabalenka was probably the best of the three if you were going to pick through the first uh, six months of the year, and yet Mukova had answers for her uh at in Paris than in Cincinnati. So how how do as we assess the outlook for both Mukova and Sabalenka going into the US Open, how much are those matches uh unique commentaries on one player or another? How much are those matches reflections of where those two uh athletes are in terms of their overall game, their overall mentality? I mean, there are a lot of cleavages, a lot of nuances, I think one can Take from those two meetings at Roland Garros and Cincinnati and how they set up the u s Open so just uh Mert, how would you basically look at you know the the larger context of these players and those two very high profile semifinals uh, that they've recently played
0: yeah, I would uh, I think it's the, those are stepping stones for muhova and uh, and it shows that she's uh, she's also ready. For uh for for this U.S. Open because she's had well I think she's had a pretty good um, post Wimbledon pre U.S. Open stretch here she's played quality matches and and only lost in uh, close matches to what I would call at this point top level players on, in uh, in women's tennis and uh, you know I believe here she's got a decent draw and I actually look f- you know if I had to make a prediction now I'd put uh, golf and Schiavone as the as the quarterfinal and i would say that the winner of that quarterfinal is going to play muhova in the semifinals mm-hmm. i know there are players in the top half of the draw that people believe you know if they're at, if they're at their best they'll pl- they'll blow the competition out of the out of the way such as you know Rybakina or kvitova yeah sure if they're at their best you know the those two players for example they can really literally blow uh, their opponents off the court but will there be at will they be at their best for so many matches in a row? Rybakina is certainly one of the uh, favorites, or one of the ones that uh, many people view as being favorite, one of the four or five favorites to win the tournament. But I would argue that uh, Muhova has shown in the hard court season that she can back up what she's done at uh, at Roland Garros, and uh, and you know if she reaches the semifinals here uh, and plays the winner of. Uh, golf and Sviontek or you know whoever else comes from the bottom, she's got a shot at the finals. And when you're at the finals for the second time in one year, you have a better chance of winning than you did in the first time around, in my opinion.
3: Andrew, your thoughts on Mukova and Sabalenka.
2: Um you know sometimes um a, a a matchup works well for a player. Uh you know, they were both semi-final matches, and 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 one of the things that Sabalenka is doing, which I think is really interesting, given where she was in her headspace a year or so ago, is that she's now almost you you don't quite ink her name into the semi-final spot, but you 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 pencil it in. I agree with Mert that uh, Mukova has has a reasonable draw. She's in the the eighth, though, of Maria Sakari, who's, I think, not had a terrific uh, 2023 so far. So if Mukova comes out of that eighth, then could be Azarenka, could be Rabakina. Um, I, I, I am still... Uh, looking forward just just generally structurally about the WTA. I was trying to do the thing of going through the, the players who are supposed on seeding to make it to the quarterfinal stage. And I think I had slightly fewer no's against players in the WTA side than I had on the ATP side, which is which is not terribly surprising. I, I always think that the the WTA in the last six or seven years has been something of an any given Saturday uh tournament, uh which is not to to downgrade the um the the competition, it's more to say we haven't had players routinely make it through tournament after tournament to quarterfinals and semifinals and obviously this year Wimbledon the the first time it was won by a non-seeded player on Vondrusova so are we going to see something similar in New York that someone who uh, is someone known to WTA specialists but not to regular fans and to uh you know tennis nerds who who contribute to podcasts who kn- who knows but it would be it would be good to see someone like mukova uh become an established top ten player because her game is so so interesting to watch
3: another player we need to talk about ons Jabur and you know made back to back Wimbledon finals an absolutely tremendous achievement and yet and this this I think this I think surprised most people in the tennis world that in her second Wimbledon final her, her level of performance was worse than it was the first time that's usually not how it works for for most athletes usually the second time you have a little bit better sense of how to navigate it but you know the obvious possibility here is that you know, she realized just how big an opportunity it was. She wasn't playing Schuvinck or or Rabacana or Sabalenka. I mean, she beat Rabacana, uh on her on her way to the final, um, but for for whatever reason, wasn't able to play a good match. And so, you know, as we consider the the pressure of being a, an elite athlete, and you know, you can be very successful, very wealthy, but you know, you want to chase down that first major championship. And there is something to be said for wanting something too much that it hijacks your performance. But also, you know, just the pressure of that expectation, the pressure of that hope, it can make athletes think, you know what, if I don't uh, uh, do well at this tournament, it's a real setback. I mean, that that might not be the right way to view it, but it's obviously human nature for human beings to think like that. How important is this U.S. Open on you know piggybacking off wimbledon for onstjerberg because you know unlike you know Tech, and Rabakina, sabalenka too she's not nearly as young as those other three players are she she she's more in the midpoint of her career uh not she doesn't have you know a deck another decade of of top 10 tennis to look forward to most likely the uh, you know the tennis clock is ticking we've gone through this kind of conversation with Carolina Plishkova recently and other players in there, you know, t- after turning 30, you don't, you're not going to get, you're not guaranteed too many more bites at the, at the apple, or in this case, the big apple in New York. How important is this tournament for Ansjabert, Andrew first, and then Mert second? Um, I don't,
2: I, I don't, Think that Anz Jaber thinks it, that she is going to win in every tournament she plays, but I think Anz Jaber now believes she can win every tournament that she plays, and that's that's a different thing. So, uh, if she does well, and if she gets some confidence and if she starts to think that she's potentially playing with house money uh then who knows how far she can go and if we saw her lifting the trophy on the saturday i think it would be a tremendous story i think she's she's incredibly popular with her fellow athletes and i think that you'd you'd have twitter and instagram flooded with congratulatory messages it would be wonderful for for African tennis if she did that, and to a certain extent, I think you teed it up quite well in terms of the Wimbledon performance. I think that there was the sense that, you know, it, it it was hers for the taking. That she wasn't in a final against one of the very top players. She was in a final against a. A pretty decent opponent, but not someone who was a pre-tournament favorite at all, and, and was unseeded. And so, I think the weight of expectations potentially got to her. If she's able, as I said, to play with house money, we could see her doing really well. But I would imagine that that you know she's not a, a golf, she's not a Yannick Sinner with ten to fifteen years of running room ahead of her. But I'd be surprised if she thinks that it's it's New York or bust. I would imagine that she hopes to do well. That she's she's professional. She's she's now played multiple times at you know for the biggest tournaments in the world. And so now she thinks, why not me?
0: Martin? Yeah, uh, no, I, I'm I'm I agree with uh, what uh, what Andrew said. I, I also think age is uh, nowadays. Little more than just a number. I think that would be the case if, say, Jaber was in her mid thirties, and, uh, and even then, uh, Tatiana Maria would argue otherwise. She's she's thirty six and she's having the best, arguably, the best year of her career. And uh, so you know, it's 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 uh, at twenty eight. I think you're still in the middle of your peak years. Uh, I don't think she's worried about it age wise, uh, but it is worrisome, I'm sure, to her that she's you know she keeps reaching the the final of a slam and uh, and not getting the trophy. But she's not the first one to run into that uh, problem either. So that should be, I don't know if that provides comfort, but at least it doesn't put her in a class by herself in a negative way. Uh, a lot of champions, the, a lot of people whom we consider today great champions have gone through this, uh, you know, losing in the finals of a major uh, three, four times before finally winning it. So um, so Jabersh, you know, will still... Um, Go out there believing that she can win the big title. Just, uh, just as uh, Andrew said, and also what people forget about Jabir is that uh, she's uh, she has acquired a superstar status in the just in the last year or two, and that requires a whole uh, adaptation of handling or managing that uh, that status in your mindset with your team, etc. That that she didn't have to deal with before. You know, maybe maybe there's a, a ton more requests for interviews or or TV appearances, or there's a lot more strain on her time. Uh, that uh, that uh, that's something that she did not have to deal with before. So, uh, you know, for example, we uh, we talk about a lot of the Western stars being superstars, but but uh, you know, Jabert is a superstar right now in her in a, in her own way in a whole part of the world that doesn't get covered necessarily by the main media. For example, I can tell you right now. From just what I've seen in the last week in New York on the grounds, uh, that uh, that Coco Golf is a superstar. I mean, every time she walked into public, you would not believe the amount of uh, teenagers or just regular fans just running, screaming, and and wanting her signature, etc. And and I'm in admiration of how remarkably cool she handles that whole situation and how she manages that uh, that that status not only overall in media appearances but also in. In you know when she, the way she handled, for example, the dozens of people that were running to her to get uh, to get autographs, but uh, but Jabir is that in a whole other part of the world. I don't think Coco Golf is a superstar the way she is here in the U.S. That she is in other parts of the world, but and, and same thing goes for Jabir, and um, and sometimes that gets overlooked, and that again that requires a whole new way of mentally managing the situation. And the more appearances she has in the finals of a major, to me, that's a plus on her side whether she wins or loses because she gets more and more comfortable in her skin to, to her status. Even if she were to go to the finals at, of the US Open this tournament and lose, I think that's still a step in the, forward, or the, the in, in a forward direction which will help her win it in the future.
3: All right, I'm going to break down the draw in just a moment, but one more general question. And that and that uh, question is set up by this larger point you'd have to go back to 2016 when Angelique Kerber won the US Open you have to go back to 2016 to find a US open women's champion who made a very deep run at Wimbledon who basically who made the final at Wimbledon and then backed it up with a championship uh, you know several weeks later in New York you had Sloan Stevens Madison Keys in 2017. Uh they didn't you know go especially deep at Wimbledon uh that year. Naomi Osaka, of course, never has gone deep at Wimbledon. She won you know her uh, US Open titles. Uh, uh and then uh Bianca Andreescu uh in 2019, she did not make a deep Wimbledon run that year. Um and then more recently uh you had the Fernandez Raducanu championship match, which came out of nowhere in 2021, and then last year Iga Swiatek won after not uh, going especially deep uh, at Wimbledon that summer. So that that this is not a Jabur and Von Druseva focused point. It's more about the man- management of a, a whole season and how you know we often talk about first half of season players, second half season players, carrying something throughout a whole year, you know, through a full season. Like, this has implications for Sviantech for Sabalenka. They've done a little bit more heavy lifting than others. But then maybe you, you look at a, a player who's fresher by because she hasn't played nearly as many matches. Are we going to see a surge by a player that doesn't have a lot of uh, tread on the tires? And is that going to be the person who lifts the trophy in New York? That's really the general balance I'm asking about. Do you think it's going to be someone who's been carrying the weight for most of the season and has proven her medal in big battles? Or do you think it's going to be a player that, you know, entering this late uh, season major uh, has not had to overextend herself and is going to be really fresh and can make a really big run? Mert first, Andrew second.
0: I um, I can't really argue that she's going to be super fresh. In fact, she uh, she withdrew from a match uh, two tournaments ago, so I don't know. But I think, as someone who's do, who's done well at Wimbledon this year, and uh, and she has a chance to do well here too. I would I would pick Madison Keys as the answer to to your question if I had to pick somebody. And um, I think that she, uh, you know, her draw provides a a, a chance to do well because she's playing Arantxa Rus first round. And then she's in the side with uh, Samsonova, and uh, and Caroline Garcia is the seventh seed on that side, and uh, and uh, Jessica Pegula would be the you know would be the one that she would have to beat in round four, which I think Madison Keys at the U.S. Open can, you know, but the the, the question for me is can can Keys put together six seven great matches in a row and uh, and make a run t- you know to the final like she did a few years back. But uh, yes that would be the player that I would pick Matt, the the way you framed that question you know she, and and she did fairly well at Wimbledon too I, I, if if I'm not wrong she she used the fourth round of the quarterfinals but that would be the one, the the player that I would uh pick for if at the US Open to possibly raise some eyebrows
2: by the time the second week rolls around Andrew Um yeah I think one of the things that we sometimes talk about is would you pick X versus the field? Would you pick Djokovic versus the field uh, on the ATP side? And, and this time around I'd say no but if it was Djokovic plus Alcaraz versus the field, I'd probably say yes. Um, would you pick the so-called WTA big field, Sriantek, Sabalenka, and Rabakina versus the field, I kind of get the sense that I'd probably say no. In other words, that is there a 50-50 chance or better that the winner will come out of, of those three players? I don't think so. Um, And there are players among the, the top seeds that we, we haven't done deep dives on yet. Like, Jessica Pagula or Caroline Garcia. There are other players. I always think that if, if Ostapenko gets hot, then, then watch out because, you know, she's, she's a slightly smaller version of arena Sabalenka that when she hits the ball, it stays hit. And if it goes in and if it goes in consistently, then she can take anybody out and she's, she's won 7 matches at a grand slam tournament before so maybe it's a uh, it's 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 a slightly different version of marat safin i don't know uh but anyhow uh i i i always think that the the w, and until we have repeat finals something like an, an alcaraz djokovic situation where they're playing each other in each tournament time and again, then you're going to look at a WTA draw and say it, it it could be someone that we, we just haven't mentioned Barbara Krachikova, um you know, who knows.
3: So as we look at the draw, um, you know, you obviously have the potential for multiple rematches from Canada, from Ohio with Spion Tech and, and Goff and Spion Tech, Pegula, Goff, Pagula as well. Uh, how would you both uh, assess just the reality of there being matches earlier in the North American summer hardcourt season, how a rematch and those dynamics might affect uh, a, a second meeting in New York? Andrew first, Mert second.
2: I think that a Grand Slam is just a different beast uh and suppose that we get a Sviantic Goff match in the quarterfinals um it's going to feel different to a Sviantec Goff match uh up in Cincinnati so I I would imagine that that it would give Goff uh a degree of confidence having um having gotten to at least one in the head to head that she can do it again in New York. Is it going to mean that uh, Iga Shriantek's knees are knocking together as she steps onto Ash stadium? I don't think so. So uh, I, I, I think that, you know, it would be interesting to see rematches. I don't think they have a huge impact on the bearing of the, the matches
0: in a in a grand slam. I uh, I'm I'm going to line up fairly well with with Andrew here. I I do think that the previous record matters little uh, when you step onto the court, especially now that uh, you know Coco's got that first win. I do, however, believe that there's some, there's some truth to to the saying that it's difficult to beat a player twice in a row in such a short period of time. Uh, so, and uh, there's a, uh, you know, this is with, if they end up playing with each other, it'd be a second time they're meeting each other within a month. And in my opinion, that'd be a tougher, <clears throat> it'd be a tougher uh, task for uh, for Coco Golf to, um, to, to beat Sri Nantik a second time within a month. But I'm sure if we dig up, uh, if we do some research and dig up some historical records, there'd be plenty of examples that would prove me wrong too. So, uh, so that was just a uh, very, um, that's just in my view. But uh, overall, I think once they step onto the court, it's going to matter little. And uh, whoever has the better plan or whoever executes better that day should get the win.
3: All right. Final question on the women's draw-in for our show here. And that is, you know, so we had Marqueta Vondrosova winning Wimbledon. Uh, Certainly was not a widespread pick to win the tournament uh, beforehand. So if there is a player who's going to come from off the radar and you think is well placed within the draw in terms of, you know, the combination of factors that we've been discussing, you know, physically fresh, but also battle tested, just, you know, like the things are lining up well for that player to do well in New York, but isn't going to get the banner headline treatment the way Svantec, Goff, and Sabalenka will, also Jabur. Uh who do you think that player would be? Mert first, Andrew second.
2: I would go
0: I, I would go again with um with Madison Keys. That was that, that that's kind of uh the, how you framed the question, correct, Matt?
3: I mean that's yeah, I mean that's fine. Yeah, I, mean, I know you referenced her earlier. You you can go back to the well. That, yeah, know, like that yeah. is a coaching strategy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I that that's the that's the player that I also had uh, to answer that specific question that you just had then. But she also did well at Wimbledon, so it fit both answers. But uh, that sure. would be the player.
3: It fits both. It fits.
0: Yes, yes, that would be the player that I would put uh, forth as a uh, as having a chance to go far. Um, I would also like to see. You know, I mentioned her earlier too. I'd like to see as an unseeded player. I'd like to see how far Tatiana Maria goes. She blew through competition at uh, at the 125k that she won in Colombia just two two weeks ago uh, or three weeks ago and then she reached the semifinals just this week and she's truly having a, a, a the, the you know the best sequence of her career at the age of 36 and I'd like to see with her game really awkward game by the way uh plenty of slices on both sides uh, a lot of coming to the net uh not giving the opponent any rhythm and she's unseated player playing another unseated opponent in the first round uh but not a, not an easy opponent by any means petra martic but i'd like to see how you know how far she goes there simply because she's so informed, i'm curious i'm curious to see uh to see how far she goes she's got she's got a 10 year old daughter who can really knock the ball by the way and um uh you know with uh, often moms in on the on the wt circuit are, are talked about and i feel that she's not getting enough uh spotlight here you know for what she's accomplished at this late in her career and uh, being a mom of two—a ten-year-old and one that uh, that she gave birth to
3: just two years ago. Andrew,
2: I think I've already mentioned my um, player who is not high on the radar screen, but but is a is a wild card, and that's Ostapenko. I uh, I think that she's in the Sriantec section i believe and so if she gets through to a quarter final through Iga or if Iga gets knocked out early then uh you know you've got potentially goff um as a quarter final opponent um i think yelena is just a little bit like Sam Vavrinka. Uh not Sam Vavrinka, Stan Vavrinka. Sorry about that, Mr. Vavrinka. Um, in that if she's playing really well, she can beat anybody on her day. And she knows how to to, to win seven matches because she's done it before.
3: All right, folks. That you have had a lot to digest from Alcaraz, Djokovic at Cincinnati all the way through both draws some tennis technique tips and coaching strategies mixed in. This is our Grande Platter, our U.S. Open preview special. We couldn't have had two better guests to get you prepared for the coming fortnight in New York. Andrew Burton, Mert Ertunga, Coach Mert, helping us uh, prepare you for the U.S. Open on a Tennis with an Accent podcast. Look forward to Sockets, continued podcasting, and our written coverage of the U.S. Open championships. Andrew and Mert, thanks so much. Enjoy the coming fortnight. Mert continued to success uh, professionally. Uh, thank you so much for giving up your time.
0: Thanks a lot. Thank you guys.